I'm sitting here today with Edgar Schein. Ed is Professor Emeritus from MIT Sloan School. He's widely recognized as one of the most important contributors to the field of organizational development with his work on corporate culture and advancing our understanding of how and why norms of behavior are established in organizations. His seminal book, Corporate Culture and Leadership, is currently in its fifth edition. In recent years, Ed has unpacked the, dyna the dynamics involved in helping and explored the role of humility in uh, effective leadership at all levels of organizations in today's complex, fast-changing world. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much, Mary Jane. It's a pleasure also to be here. I'm always happy to talk about the vicissitudes of leadership. Ed, so over the past 60 years, you've observed, consulted to, and written about leadership. How have your own thoughts about leadership changed over time, if they have? Leadership is, is one of those topics that is an obsession in the U.S. culture because we're all about individualism and heroism, and uh, uh, we associate great performances with great leaders. We pay lip service to teamwork, but it's the individual lone hero leader that really fascinates us. And the main change that I want to emphasize, which is caught in the book that my son and I have just finished, called Humble Leadership, is to realize that we've put way too much emphasis on the leader as an individual and not nearly enough emphasis on leadership as a process. Because if you define leadership as doing something new and different and better, then you find leadership happening all over the place. Uh, when a assembly line worker sees a better way of doing some part of his or her job, that's an act of leadership. Uh, just as much as if the president of the company finds that there's a new strategy that they need. So the idea of humble leadership is to get away from looking at what does the individual need to be to be a leader and really examining the many, many ways that leadership occurs. For example, if you just take uh, a hospital or the medical practice, uh, the surgeon in the, in the OR is the accountable leader, but that person expects leadership from the anesthesiologist, from the nurses, from the techs, they, when they see a better way to do something and suggest it or correct an error, I think it's important to begin to see those all as acts of leadership rather than focusing just on the person who has the official role, who has the title, who has the accountability. And I think that's very important for the future because groups are going to find that leadership is very distributed uh, you won't know in a given team, like in a, in a uh, military operation, uh, which of the particular Navy SEALs who is doing the operation will be called upon to do the next bit of leadership because that person will be facing a new situation. 
So does that give you a sense of how I think it's a big shift to go away from the person, hero, leader, to seeing it as a process? Uh, one more thought about it. The most interesting book I've read recently is written by a group of uh, theater artists in the UK who are working with executives on showing them what leadership is like in the theater arts where the production has to be a perfect ensemble where everyone, including the person who has only one line, has to deliver it perfectly. So when you think about the director and the editors and the actors, you begin to see that, yeah, the director has the title, but the performance won't happen if if any one of the people in the in the play does things wrong. Then he takes these same executives and shows them what happens in a world-winning uh, dance pair, how they develop the coordination. And then he takes them to a chorus and shows them what the relation is between the chorus director and the singers. And you begin to see, wow, leadership is a lot of different things. Interesting. So let's broaden the concept to the process and not constantly worry about the person. That's really interesting. What you're saying is it's not the formal role, it's not the person with the title, but it's a set of activities that anybody at any level can engage in. So my question would be, for leaders of medical organizations, be they hospitals or group practices, how do you foster other people to take leadership if, if they don't have that in their official title? I think what happens is the task itself uh, creates the opportunity. That you, you don't have to foster it, what you have to do is to get out of the way. I think when I look at typical hierarchies and bureaucracies, what I see is uh, the junior people having good ideas that the senior people either don't hear or actively ignore. Uh, there's much more of that, of dampening leadership that's coming up from below than there is having to stimulate it. Unless you've spent so many years curbing the enthusiasm below you that people finally learn not to speak up. They become feel psychologically unsafe to suggest anything. And then, then we say, well, how do we get them engaged? The problem is you first disengage them and then suddenly want help in how to re-engage them, but you are the problem, uh, not the people below you, that you haven't created the climate, if you're the p person in power, to elicit uh, new and better ideas from below you and make it safe for people to come up with those ideas. The leader in the formal position has to create a group environment that will make process leadership, improving how things are done, uh, easier to do 
and allow it to be more widely distributed because in most groups the the know-how and knowledge of how to do things better will be widely distributed. So creating a climate for leadership is another way to think about it. The formal leader has to create a climate for process leadership throughout the organization. Then let's talk concretely. If one is a chief of a service, not the highest person in the organization, but responsible for running a service, and you want to engage your team, and that's a very popular term these days, engagement. You want to engage them, and perhaps you have the insight that you haven't done it before really well, or some of your own behaviors have stifled the creativity that exists. How do you go about that? Do you need to apologize? How do you then, you have the insight, and you want to uh, engage others and foster those different behaviors? What's your first action? Well, my, in the book we talk about a concept of personizing. Say that again, personizing. Personizing, deliberately changing the word personalize into the word personize. Okay. And what we mean by that is that what we have learned in most hierarchies and bureaucracies is to maintain professional distance with our subordinates, with our teammates, because it seems to work better. You don't want to get too intimate. You don't want to get too close. You don't want to make friends because that might lead to favoritism. So a person who finds themselves in the role of having created that distance and suddenly has the insight uh, that maybe even with patience there's been too much distance. What you have to figure out is whether there's some way you could personize those relationships. And the example that I used with some doctors here at, at Stanford where we were having some discussions is the doctor is under time pressure. He knows he's only got 10 minutes with the patient. He hates that situation. Uh, and I asked actually one of the, at, at a lunch, one of the, the, the senior people, supposing you did it this way, would this work? You march into the the patient's room. He's, he's been waiting there for a long time. He's impatient. He's anxious. You go right up to the patient. You put your hand on his shoulder and say, hi, and use his name and say, with a big smile on your face, you and I know that we've only got 10 minutes, but 10 minutes is a long time. Let's make the most of it. I asked that doctor, if you did that, wouldn't that change the relationship? And this doctor thought about it and said, of course it would. Mm. Could you do that? Of course I could. So it's not like the skill to be more personal, to be more relational, to be more uh, giving rather than confrontive and distant is what we do with our friends. It's what we do with, with the outside relations. I believe we're going to have to use some of that behavior at work. We're going to have to get friendlier 
put a smile on her face. And of course, the classic case is my son-in-law, whom I quote all the time, who when he built his team for these delicate children's spine operations. He is an orthopedic surgeon. He's an sorry. orthopedic children's surgeon doing these highly specialized situations where his team really has to work closely with him. I asked him, how do you build that team? And his first answer was, well, I, I make sure that they're competent and then I take them out to lunch. Mm -hmm. That's a classic answer because lunch equates the roles and deformalizes it and they get to know each other a little bit. And then I learned that, you know, he no longer had dedicated teams. They're now under such pressure that when he arrives at the OR, he may discover that there are strangers there whom he's never worked with. So I asked him recently, then what do you do? And he said, well, I found that I can use the checklist that way. Instead of using the checklist as a bureaucratic device to skip through, I asked the chief nurse to go through the items very slowly with a lot of eye contact, and I look at each person on each item and invite questions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that during the three or four minutes that we're doing the checklist, I'm making myself mm -hmm. available to mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. I'm maintaining a lot of eye contact. Mm -hmm and de facto with body language saying, you know, we're gonna have to trust each other mm -hmm. and I'm here, you know, I'm gonna hear you mm -hmm. if you have something to say. Mm -hmm. So here, here are a couple of cases where doctors have figured out how to do it, but it means your self-image has to change. You have to become humble, you have to become willing to listen you have to ask questions that invite comment. And above all, you can't shoot the messenger if something negative comes up. You have to hear it and deal with it. And a lot of the junior people, the nurses who won't speak up to angry surgeons, will say, well, why should I? He shot me down three, four times. So I'm not going to take the risk of uh, saying something even if he or she is making a mistake. That's the tragedy of it, that we create this distance and then the distance causes people to, to, to not speak up and then we suddenly realize that that costs us something, but it's our own behavior that's created it, it's our own behavior that will change it. In terms of going back a little bit to the heroic individual leader, is that something that's part of the American culture or is, is have you seen different models of leadership in other parts of the world? I wonder if this is a uniquely American problem. I think the American problem is not so much the... Uh, the worship of the individual leader, but the negative attitudes toward meetings and teams and group work. I think in, in other societies we find, sure, we, we, a lot of respect for the individual, but we also see a lot more respect for teamwork and groups as being intrinsic to work. 
The problem in the U.S., we view groups and meetings and teams as adjuncts, as, as necessary devices to get the job done. But it's not intrinsic, except in a few sports. In a few sports like basketball, we acknowledge the team makes a difference. But it's in the basketball that we see most clearly the disdain for the group because right now the the San Francisco Warriors have two six stars and uh, you know one one with an ankle injury and the other one with a ribcage industry and all you see in the newspapers is moaning about these two <laughs> sick people when in fact they have built a team that probably could function pretty well without them and in the newspaper should highlight how well a team can do without them rather than bemoaning the fact that there are two stars that are not going to play in the next right, game. Right, circling back to our fascination with the individual as, as the hero and the That's star. That's right. Very interesting. 